0: You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality.
1: Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, November 29th, 2017, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Good evening, guys. Kara is in China.
2: Oh, boy. Wow. Wow.
1: But she will be back next
2: week. Very She's smart, do, right? Make yeah. that flight, and you know, just hop around that part of
1: yeah, yeah, you know, the, the halfway world. around the world. She was going to try to join us, but then she realized that she would have no internet access. Yeah, then oh, don't they block not, us or something? We've heard that, but I've heard I've heard mixed things about that. But who knows? It's moving target, I think.
3: But in any case, generically speaking, I guess she doesn't have the bandwidth, or the bandwidth was so spotty that she felt she couldn't couldn't make it happen. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. But she did tell us that she had an amazing time in Australia. And And New Zealand. And New Zealand, yep. She went over and uh, just, you know, making us feel very jealous about all the cool things that she did over the past couple weeks. Hey guys,
1: so it's that time of year again. Mm -hmm. We are getting close to the end of the year wrap up episode. Uh, And we're going to do what we did last year, which is live stream the, that episode. And then we'll of course release it as a podcast as well. So we're going to be doing that uh, from our studio on December 22nd at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. We'll be live streaming on our Facebook page, the end-of-the-year wrap-up show. And, of course, it'll be released. That'll be, that'll be the um, December 30th podcast for that week. So it'll be released at that time. So that means you have a couple of weeks to email us your votes for your favorite episode of the year, best interview, funniest moment, you're the most interesting news item of the year, the skeptical jackass of the year. Mm-hmm. All the best and worst of the year. We'll be compiling the usual reviews that we do. It's always a fun episode. Please, please
4: send those emails. Uh, they are a tremendous help to us. I, I, we, we put a lot of weight on the what the viewers send us, what the listeners send us in terms of best and worst and, and all that stuff. So that would be great if we get a big response So we so we could do less work in preparing.
1: Is that what it's all about? We (laughs) could prepare to make it better. Yes, yes.
3: Yes. That's what I meant. That's what I meant. Exactly right.
1: Uh, Yeah, that's always a fun episode. We're looking forward to that. All right, Bob, get us started with a forgotten superhero of science.
4: Yes, for this week's forgotten superhero of science, I am talking about Hisako Koyama, 1916 to 1997, who observed and drew sunspots for her entire career, offering an invaluable resource to solar astronomers. Now, Koyama graduated from high school in Tokyo in the 1930s, something that not many girls did in pre-World War II Japan, where they had no right to vote and they were encouraged to do basically one thing, have babies. That was pretty much a high priority for women back then in Japan. So she was fascinated by stargazing and she would – I love this story – she would reportedly she would sneak outside when sirens were blaring in, in her in her area of the city, and there were blackouts and she because she would go out there um, with her chair and a star chart star chart and because she would love looking at the the clarity of the night sky with all the lights out. Um, And this is when she wasn't supposed to be outside. So that was – I just love that little story uh, about her. Now, her father gave her a 36-millimeter telescope um, and in the mid-40s, 1940s, she drew her first sketch of a sunspot and sent it to the Oriental Astronomical Association and – oh, wow. That's an unfortunate name. Um, And and she (laughs) never looked back. Eventually, she was using the 20-centimeter telescope at the Tokyo Science Museum and sketched the sun – For hours, every cloudless day for over 40 years. Amazing. Amazing. Still, though, she was an amateur. She never had an advanced degree or she never worked on cutting edge uh, theories. And of course, she was a woman. And that, that limited her recognition. All of that went together and to, to really limit how much she was recognized and appreciated. So what, but one of the watershed moments, I think, was when scientists were working to basically reconstitute and regularize the sunspot record going back to 1610. Her observations stood out since they were made by one person over a tremendous period of time and they also had an enormous attention to detail that means that they used her records to normalize all the other observations she became her observations became the measuring stick for all the obse- o- yeah. all the other observations yeah basically because she had such a plethora of records that were in such good detail all the other records kind of like orbited around hers to like normalize them and make them kind of consistent mhm so, and, and the result that now her name has literally been used in the same sentence with other giants in solar observation, including Galileo. So, well done, Hisako. Nice. Amazing. So, remember Hisako Hoyama. Mention her to your friends, perhaps when discussing Spore's Law or perhaps chromospheric H alpha line core images. Spore's Law, huh? Yes.
1: What is Spore's Law?
4: Spore's Law basically predicts uh, the changes in sunspot latitudes during solar cycles.
1: Comes up all the time that one conversation. Sure. All right. So we're going to start the news items with this one about Darwin's finches. Mm -hmm. You guys know about Darwin's finches, right? Sure. Um, Classic, classic. um, Yeah, yeah. They they were critical to uh, Darwin's inspiration when he was visiting the Galapagos Islands. He noticed that there were finches on many of the islands, but those finches um, were filling – niches that they don't usually fill in other parts of the world, right, on the mainland. And what he figured out was that at some point in the past, uh, when the islands were first being made, they were, you know, they started off devoid of life and then life migrated to the islands. A, you know, finch population must have gotten onto the island and then he evolved, adapted to fill all the various niches. So, it, you know, especially the beak. The beak would change in order to be um, well adapted to the particular kind of food that that it was eating. Um, now, of course, if you believe in creation, you would have to wonder why didn't just all the usual birds that fill those fitches, those those niches, why weren't they created on the Galapagos to fill the same niches? Why would you have a finch with twenty different kinds of beaks? You know. Yep. Mm-hmm. So anyway, kind that was sort of, of the uh, part of the of Darwin's epiphany about evolution was was the finches on the Galapagos island. Well, a recent study is again using the finches of the Galapagos to make a direct observation of evolution in the act, or at least a speciation event. So... This is uh, something that – it's always great when we have long-term field observations like, Bob, like you were saying about observing the sun over a long period of time. Sure. There are are cases where scientists over like their – basically their whole career will make some field observations and gather just tremendous amounts of data. In this case, uh, the researchers observed one species of Galapagos finch immigrating to another island that was 60 kilometers away and wow. that's a, that's a, a, quite a distance for a small finch to fly. So th- they can do it, but it's a rare event because normally they won't make it that far. And then once it got there, the probability of it making it back would be rare squared, right? So it would Fat. be very unlikely mm-hmm. for that to happen. So essentially you have th- this, uh, invader, you know, for a, a different kind of finch going to, going to a different island where it, it's, not the native population, so the the researchers observing this uh, invasion event said, "Okay, what's probably going to happen is that it will breed with it was a male. It will breed with the local females, and it will just get absorbed into the local population, right?" Okay, mm-hmm. sure, makes sense. Right, and um, so this this arrival occurred in nineteen eighty one, and it was a male cactus finch, a Geospiza conirostris was the was the specific uh, species. Um, arrived on the island Daphne Major. So this is a rel- relatively larger than the native Geospiza fortis, which is the medium ground fin- finch, right? Mm-hmm. So the male cactus finch mated with local median medium ground finches, the smaller females, and they were close enough to produce fertile young, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. Again, you would expect that they would just get absorbed into the local population. But that's not what happened. They've continued to observe the offspring of this uh, invading male cactus finch over the, the last 36 years. <laughs> and what they have found is that they have produced a stable and reproductively isolated separate population, Now, which now includes about 30 individuals. They're calling these individuals, these 30, 30 birds, the big bird population because they're bigger than uh-huh. the native Finches right
3: these are the offspring,
1: yeah, these are the offspring, uh, so they basically just only mating with each other they're not mating with the local finches wow, so they're they 're reproductively isolated, and also because of their larger size, they are able to exploit food sources that the native mm-hmm. finches do not exploit. So, oh, so they found their own little, little yeah, niche. Yeah. They, they found their own niche yep. and they are not interbreeding even though they're fertile and even though they exist in the same location. Do you guys remember what the word is for that? We mentioned this before on the show. I think we, the last time we mentioned this word, we were talking about killer whale um, speciation. It's with an S. Yes, sympatry. Uh, sympatry, yes. yeah. Yes. So that's when you get genetic isolation and species occurring in the same physical location. Sympatico? Or sympatric sim- speciation is what you would call it. Interesting. Yeah.
4: So, yeah, why are they just sticking together? And and they all yeah. they all have basically the same dad or granddad or great-grandfather. I mean, is yeah. there some, uh, some inbreeding going on there?
1: Sure. Oh, yeah, so I that's two be. questions. The first yeah. question is why aren't they interbreeding? And it's a very good reason for that because uh, the native – Females, the medium ground finch females, do not recognize the mating calls of the new males. Oh, neat! So it's just Whoa. a behavioral incompatibility. They're just not—they're not digging their their mating calls.
4: They don't have any game. Yeah, Excellent. they have no game. I get it.
1: Exactly. So um, <laughs> that's it. That's all it takes is just a behavioral incompatibility, not a physical, not a genetic incompatibility, just a behavioral incompatibility. Boom! You have a separate population.
4: Wow. Uh, question 1b
1: yes and then uh the, so yeah so the, be, I, they are able to produce a viable population even though essentially it was just two individuals i guess it could have been you know one male and more than one female initially and i re- i remember uh when i was studying evolution you know at college and, and i i dub- i double checked this that geneticists calculated the probability of establishing a stable population from one male and two females and it's like 50%. It's not bad. So especially if wow. you have you know if the male and the females are genetically diverse, right? So then you you mm-hmm. have a good mix of genes right there. And then yeah, you obviously have to have sibling or at least half sibling mating the next generation, right. but then you're basically then cousins. And once you get to cousins, you're fine, you know? And I guess it also depends on luck. That's why there's like only a chance that it would work. If you happen to have some recessive genes, in uh, yeah, one yeah. of the founders then you yeah that could that could go bad but if you have two genetically diverse and healthy individuals who don't happen to have any lineup of recessive genes you can you can establish a stable although very inbred population with very few starting individuals and here right. they observed it happen that's the thing they don't have to speculate they saw yeah, it happen in real time. real time real time yeah
4: now quick aside Steve quick aside before we move on my take would be that, that, that humans could not do that because we're just, we're just not as diverse as those damn finches. No, that's right? not,
1: that's not true. No, what, you know, what if we, we actually, so are, we, human population got, is extremely outbred. We're extremely diverse.
4: No, but didn't we, uh, what about that bottleneck that, that our population went through? If that's even a thing now, did, did they just prove that? Did we talk about them actually? No, no. Oh, you're like? right.
1: You, you are correct that, you know, all things considered, you know, we went through a number of bottlenecks, you know, over the last couple of hundred thousand years. Um, but because, you know, there's sev- over 7 billion people on the planet and there there have been some pockets of population isolation, you know, if people from – whose ancestors basically come from different continents would be fairly genetically diverse, okay. probably enough that they could establish, even with only a few individuals, could establish a, a stable population. Again, a lot would depend on luck, you know, just depending on on what kind of genetic mix you get at the beginning. But, you know – it's, it's not as big a deal as we thought it was. In fact, like cousins mating with each other, eh, not, not, not that big a deal. Yeah, your, your risk is slightly increased of you know, some recessive diseases, but you, know, um, you can often get away with that. So what I like about this, other than the fact that it was such a direct observation, like we, you know, they saw it all happen you know, over the last 36 years directly observed in real time. That's so cool. Is, is that it demonstrates how quirky these speciation events can be. One bird— it's actually 65 miles, not kilometers. Was one bird made it 65 miles to another island, and that was all that was necessary. It just happened to it. have the right features and the right genetics to establish a breeding population. Now we don't know if they'll be around a thousand years from now, but whatever. At least over the 36 years, they, there's now 30 individuals in a, in a you know reasonably stable breeding population. Hey, and who
4: knows? They, they could become self-aware and tool using. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, there's a chance. Mm. Not much, right. but... <laughs> And, of course, this one observation doesn't prove evolution. You know, no one is claiming that it does. But I know, lo- but come on. Just a extrapolate. Lot of the, yeah, a lot of the components of evolution have been directly observed, and this is one of those components. You have to add them all together with other lines of evidence to say uh, you know, that evolution happened, but this is a significant piece of evidence, and this is the first time, really, this was directly observed and documented. So awesome. very, very cool. Very very cool.
3: Still learning from the finches. Of yeah, Galapagos. and
1: that's and you've got to love that, right? Just the yes. poetry of that. Oh like the, god, it's beautiful. the Galapagos finches. It's still it is such an evolutionary experiment. Those islands, you know, because you get this archipelago of islands that are genetically isolated, but not a hundred percent. They're like mostly genetically isolated. That's like a good ingredient for speciation for evolution is is isolation. Again, in this case, I have to emphasize it was just purely behavioral isolation. Not even Geologic isolation. Okay. Let's go on. Evan. Yes. So this, is, this has been a funny item. Apparently, UK <laughs> water companies are using the latest technology to find water mains.
3: Oh. The latest and greatest. That's right. It's called – stand by. Get ready. It's called dowsing. <laughs> yes, yes. Newfangled. Dowsing is back in the news again. Yes, we received several emails from SGU listeners about this news item, and I was actually given an advance heads up about the article uh, coming from a listener, an SGU listener, who was interviewed for the article, which appeared in The Guardian. So I thought that was kind of yeah. cool, and I was anticipating it, and it did hit. Uh, and I think the last time we reported on a news item about dowsing, we talked about the scam artist James McCormick. He's the fellow who sold the Iraqi military dowsing yeah. rods under the a delusion that would help them find bombs in Iraq, and he got and he got uh, smacked down by uh, mm-hmm. by lawsuits in the courts. Thank goodness, because that was awful. I think we all know what dowsing is, but just in case, a dowser is a person who claims to be able to detect things buried underground or out of sight, such as, well, most the most common dowser claim is to be able to find underground water. Um, dowsers also claim they can locate precious metals, missing people, and of course, Deadly bombs with, you know, very unfortunate uh, results for that one. So this is the news item courtesy of the Guardian. As I said, 10 of the 12 water companies in the United Kingdom have admitted they are still using the practice of water dowsing. And the disclosure has prompted calls for UK regulars to stop the water companies from doing so. And it's not like these water companies are either unaware of the criticism of dowsing or not aware that it's unscientific. These facts have no impact apparently on their policies. They incorporate it with more modern techniques for finding water. However, they still boldly claim that they used <laughs> that some of their people still rely on dowsing. The discovery that the water companies were using diviners was made by a science blogger. Her name is Sally LePage. So her parents rep- told Sally, that they saw an engineer from Severn Trent. That's one of the UK water companies. And he was walking around holding two bent pegs to locate a pipe near their home. So chalk one up for citizen science reporting on this one because Sally went ahead and contacted not only Severn Trent water company, but all the water companies in the United Kingdom to ask them what's their policy when it comes to dowsing. And that's when we discovered that all of them except one (laughs) Uh, still uh, advocate it in some respect. From Severn Trent, they said specifically, we found that some of the older methods are just as effective than the, as the new ones,
1: mm-hmm.
3: But although they do use drones, satellites, and other more modern things. They say just as effective. That's crazy. Now, they, uh, the Guardian for this article contacted Christopher Hassal, who is the SGU listener, and he is also a specialist in water management at the Leeds University School of Biology. And he was quoted in the article as saying, "The statutory bodies need to be stepping in. It's, ana- it's analogous to using homeopathy and reiki on the NHS. These are unproven practices that waste time and money. Drinking water is a fundamental human necessity and something that the water companies should be managing as effectively and efficiently as possible without using these medieval witchca- witchcraft practices." Mm-hmm. So good. Chalk one up for the skeptics getting uh, getting their say as part of this article.
1: Yeah, I mean, no one's going to die from this, but I mean, they will use this technique to determine like where to dig up the road or how much of the road to dig up, so it can be a major inconvenience, and also, it also could be a major expense. These are publicly contracted companies, you know. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, that's right. Not without its uh, costs, directly, indirectly, or otherwise. Yeah. Uh, not to mention, you know, the public perception of what are supposed – what you would think these utilities are supposed to, you know, embrace science and reject pseudoscience and that's just not the case in the case of dowsing. Yeah. They're embracing it. They're promoting it in, 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 whether they know it or not.
1: So, I mean, I, I personally think that dowsing is one of those things that's probably never going to go away because it's just so easy to, de- to deceive yourself. Yeah. Essentially – you know, there's water everywhere pretty much, you know? Mm-hmm. And so if you use any method, even if it's utterly 100% worthless, to like d- determine where to dig to find water, for example, chances are you're going to find it.
2: You mean if you dig deep enough, you'll find water yeah, you, anywhere? Yeah, you dig
1: deep <laughs> enough anywhere. So it's like, OK, so dig there – you know, until you hit water. That's basically what they say. They don't tell you, oh yeah, go down thirty feet here or forty feet there. They tell you just dig there until you find water. And of course, you would have to do a scientific study. You'd have to say, okay, what if I dig somewhere else? What if I dig where the where the dowsing didn't tell me or uh to dig or told me not to dig or whatever. You, you have to do some kind of sampling. And when you do that, of course, it's it's worthless, but if you just go by your your subjective a validation, right? You're, it's, it's all confirmation bias. It's just so easy to convince yourself that it
2: works. Yeah, Randy and the Million Dollar Challenge, I mean, they they had some like steel containers that you couldn't see the insides of and they had water in some and they had, didn't have water in others. And you know, no shock to anyone, the dowsers under those controlled circumstances could not detect water that was six inches yeah. in front of them.
1: Left well, that was the most common type of Application to the challenge was dazzling. Yeah. you know, and of course they've all failed.
3: Just put put the correct controls in place, then the phenomenon disappears. Right, and, and with and the
1: water means like they have some idea where they are. You know what I mean? It's not like they're going totally blind. So again, you know, just any guy says, "Oh yeah, it works eight out of ten times." Really? How often would it work if you just randomly guessed? You know, that mm-hmm. that might also be eight out of ten times, but they never do the control. Right. So without doing That's the, the key, control. Right? Yep. Yeah, it's like, I always can tell when someone's wearing a toupee. Yeah, really? Do you check on it or you just assume that you're right whenever you, you know, of course, you don't know when you don't detect it. So again, it's just all different versions of subjective validation or confirmation bias where whatever happens, that will confirm, you know, your hypothesis because you're not, you're not trying to disprove it by doing controlled comparisons.
2: It's a dowsing is a great example for, you know, an early. Budding skeptic to wrap your head around because you know the answer is very clear and also and I think this is a good thing for people to keep in mind. A lot of people that believe in dowsing, they believe it. You know, they're they're not scam artists. You know, a lot of them actually are fooling themselves. It's a faith. Yeah, yeah. There's there's something about. I mean, it's very easy. Like Steve was saying, like it's easy to fool yourself when you you use dowsing rods. I, we've all used them, guys, right? You know, we've all had them in our hands. We've, we've played with it. them. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, at the slightest movement could affect whether or not the rods are moving left and right, and,
1: and that's where the idiomotor effect comes in, which is you know subconscious movements that you know pe- convinces people that the rods are moving by themselves even when they are moving them.
2: And I I don't look at this one as one of the big bads. I mean, you can't even put you cannot put dousing – Next to
4: anti-vax or yeah,
2: anti-vax as an exa- good example, Bob. Like those two are not in the same ball field not, at all for me.
3: Not, not when you're divining with for water. When you're divining for bombs in a war zone. That, yeah, that, that's, that's the thing that you got to Or
2: yeah.
1: finding kidnapped kids. Or yep. and also industry gets ripped off. I mean, the industry's is spending millions of dollars on things like this. You know, very various companies. So you know, I, w- right. I wouldn't underestimate it. I think. But you're right, it's not doesn't have the immediacy of a medical scam, but still it's it's pseudoscience, it's wasteful, it can cause harm. But it, it is I agree it's a good low-hanging skeptical fruit, you know, it's like a really good one to address because the, you know, it has a couple of simple mechanisms of deception and you know, you can easily design a study to show that it doesn't work.
3: Real quick before we move on, Steve, do you remember when Perry was writing an article for the uh, New England journalist skepticism uh, about dowsing. This was back in the late 90s. Yeah. I don't know if you guys remember this. And he contacted – New England uh, has a dowsing association and he called them in order to get some comments for the article. And, did he tell you this? He called them up and he he said, hello, I'm – he introduced himself and they said – we don't have to prove nothing to no one and basically hung up the phone. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh God. So I always remember that and that sort of sums up the whole dowsing movement, if you want to call it that. Yeah. <laughs> and we don't have to prove nothing to no one. That click. sounds so much like Perry
2: though, doesn't it?
1: <laughs> That's how
3: he told the story. Oh, cl- classic.
1: All right. All right, Jay, there's a lot of talk about net
2: neutrality
1: uh, recently. So why don't Again. we give us – an Give us an overview of what is it.
2: Yeah, this is an issue that, guys, I've been following for quite a while. I mean, I think very early when I I first heard about this, I was very concerned about it. So back in February 2015, under the Obama administration, the Federal Communications Commission, also known as the FCC, created regulations that Internet providers have to follow. And in essence, the regulations ensured that internet providers cannot block or slow access to any legal website or content. So the regulations classified internet access as a telecommunications service. And this made sure that the internet service providers, you know, we call these companies ISPs, uh, they, this made sure that these ISPs did not discriminate how broadband was used. This means that all online data was created equal doesn't matter what company was pushing the data out doesn't matter who was looking at the data basically all the ones and zeros had to be looked at as all the same and they can't say i like this company more than that company no favoritism nothing no shenanigans so trump appointed a man named ajit pai to the fcc chair
3: Oh, as chair, right? Yeah. yeah, he was on the commission, right? That's but,
2: right. He used right. to. He was on the commission under uh, Wheeler. Was he the, made uh, him was, the was the chair uh, in the Obama administration? And then when when Trump took over, he he put uh, IG Pai in the chair seat. And Mister Pai has made it his goal to get rid of net neutrality regulations. And under under Pai's new plan, internet providers would only have to disclose how they're managing online content. I'll say that again. They will only have to disclose how they're managing online content. So right out of the gate, these companies are going to make their own online content much more readily available than their competitors. So let's imagine that net neutrality is taken away. This idea that every, all content is deemed equal and, can, and has to be given the same exact connectivity to the internet and, and access to this to this data. Once net neutrality goes away, what what the internet providers are going to do, they're very likely to charge companies, say, like Netflix, more money just to stream their content, something that they're already doing today. They're just gonna say, Well, you know, we're gonna charge you probably in the hundreds of millions of dollars a year to continue streaming your content at very high uh, bandwidth right you know with, you know with the ability for millions of people to gain access to your content and they 'll do this to Google and Facebook and all you know all the, all the big players on the internet um, they 're also likely to come up with tiers on how we, the consumer, are going to be able to access the internet so for example, you know you 'd have what the what you 're hearing a lot of this now, like the slow lane or the flat the fast lane, so for a lower cost, you can have very slow internet speeds and have limited access to places on the web. So like if you buy the slow lane thing, you might not have access to Netflix at all because that is going to cost you more money. And the price for you to access, you know, important websites like I would think Wikipedia is a very important website, but there's lots of websites out there that they would charge you more or they would put them in, you know, the premium package versus the the you know, starter package. This allows the internet providers to charge companies high dollars to ensure that their content is readily available and at the same time charge us consumers more money to gain access to these services. So when you look at it like they're charging you coming and going, they're going to charge the consumers more to gain access to the sites that we already have access to and they're going to charge the providers of the content more just just to stream their data as they're doing business today, which means that the internet providers are just going to make more money. And they're not increasing the service at all.
1: Or they'll just give priority to their content.
2: Right. Of course. Right. I mean the first thing they're, they're going to do is they're going to say, hey, we're you know, company X. You know, we, have, we own these 15 different you know, companies that could be a media company or whatever. They're going to have the absolute best connectivity you could possibly imagine and make, you know, make their websites yeah. even faster than they are today. So the FCC recently revealed its plan to get rid of all the current net neutrality regulations and Pai argues in the plan that net neutrality, net neutrality regulations are, in his words, last century utility-style regulation. He says he wants an open internet, thanks Pi, and thinks the current regulations are stopping ISPs from improving their services and that it's limiting growth on the market. This is absolutely incorrect. So top companies like Google, Amazon, Dropbox, Facebook, Microsoft, Netflix, Twitter, Spotify, Airbnb, you ever hear of these guys? All of them have spoken out against Pi's plans to get rid of net neutrality. And Google actually put out a formal statement. A lot of the companies put out formal statements. But I like what Google had to say. They said the internet should be competitive and open. That means that no internet access provider should block or degrade internet traffic, nor should they sell fast lanes that prioritize particular internet services over others. These rules should apply regardless of whether you're accessing the internet using a cable connection, a wireless service, or any other technology. Now, no surprise, the big telecom companies like AT&T, Charter, Comcast, TimeWater, Verizon, They're all supporting efforts to get rid of net neutrality. They even petitioned the Supreme Court to overturn these rules. My final point on this is there's way too few of these Internet providers today. This means that a very small number of companies are providing Internet access to everybody. You know, it's not a monopoly yet, but it's pretty damn close. It gives these companies profound levels of control over the market. And if anything, we need much more competition and, and move away from these handful of giant companies. We should be treating the internet as a right to humanity. meaning every, I, I think, ideally, everyone should have access fiber optic level level access to the internet. You know it's a utility at this point. I need electricity. I need access to water. I need access to some form of heat, you know, like oil or gas or electricity for heat, and I need internet. I mean, imagine your life without the internet. Most of us are using the internet all day. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's how we conduct business. It's how we, we manage our, our personal lives. You know, it's, I think it's in everybody's direct interest to really read about net neutrality and understand how severe this is. The, the vote is going to come up December 14th, I believe. And you know, when they voted in, they're saying it's likely that the, the repeal of net neutrality is going to happen, meaning that this guy is going to get what he wants. And these, these Internet providers are going to start controlling things from a very, very powerful position on how the Internet works. Experts are saying things like it's going to ruin the, the current ebb and flow of the way the Internet functions today. So go to battleforthenet.com. dot com. Read about it and get involved. This is a big one, guys. Yeah,
1: you know, Jay, my my understanding is that the key, you know, from a from a A technical point of view. The key is that what what was decided in the Obama era was that ISPs are common carriers. And that's what enabled them to enforce net neutrality. And what they're proposing now is that they take that away. They do not characterize them as common carriers, meaning they're not Subject to the rules of net neutrality, right? So that that's that's the key bit—the
3: legal underpinnings, basically.
1: Yeah, the way it is. The, the reason why they they uh, characterized ISPs as common carriers because that was the only way the FCC could do it, but Congress could pass even more solid uh, net neutrality laws. Oh sure, so yeah. yeah There's a the definitive law. Yeah, makers, so definitely. Yeah, so the the FCC's order was really just a patch because they don't really have the authority. To do anything else so within their authority, they were able to make ISPs common carriers, and mm-hmm. then the net neutrality applies. But Congress could just say ISPs, you know, just, they could just they could legislate net neutrality at a higher level. In other words, and um, make it so that it's not something subject to just how the FCC chooses to carry out, you know, their their mandate. Um, so we would lock it in more more securely. So we. Not only do we need to keep this from happening, we need to, you know, ideally, we—if you believe in net neutrality—you'd want to go one step further and and pass legislation that would lock it in, you know.
2: Yeah, I, I hate to say this, but a lot of experts are saying it's very likely that net neutrality will be repealed. Yeah.
1: All right, Bob, we had a very interesting visitor to our solar system recently.
2: Yeah, uh
4: before Halloween, it was very interesting. Uh for the first time ever, we have detected an object that has entered our solar system from outside. Uh this was detected last October nineteenth by NASA's Pan Stars One telescope, which looks for asteroid uh threats to Earth. So that's a I just love that 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 telescope is part of the team looking for these asteroids. Do we need to qualify this? You know, it's the
3: first, like, large object we've detected from outside the solar. Well,
4: I mean, yeah.
3: I, outside. So, I, I mean, we're bombarded with, you know, particles from all over right, the universe. Right, which, which and I thought
4: about that, which is why I said object. I wouldn't call cosmic rays objects. Okay, all right. So that's your qualifier. Okay. Object. So how do we know that, that the asteroid was interstellar? Essentially, it was detected with a velocity that was just way too high to originate locally. It was uh, sped up to a point of, uh, let's see, 100, 196,000 miles per hour or 87 kilometers per second. And that's after. That's a little bit after the sun got a hold of it and sped it up a bit. But uh, even before then, when we first detected it, this thing was just going way too fast. Uh, the sun essentially just can't produce a, a velocity like that, um, and, and it's also faster than anything we've ever launched. So this thing was flying through. But it also means that the sun can't stop it. So it's definitely just passing on through. And I think in a few years, it's actually going to be you know pretty gone. I mean, we're not going to be able to really detect it after the first quarter of 2018. I mean, it's just really we're, we're going to lose sight of it very fast. I mean, because basically, you know, it is hard to see and relatively small. Uh, but how small? It's actually, um, 400 to 700 meters. Uh, but more on that in a moment. Its official designation was initially unknown because we never named an interstellar object like this before. Like, wait, we have no precedent. This is the first time. So, if, time to set the yeah, precedent. Eventually, they came up with a nomenclature for such things, uh, which in this case is interstellar object. I think it's one L. It's one and then a, uh, a vertical line. I guess that's an L, but one L, 2017 U1. Luckily, uh, the Hawaii-based astronomers that saw it first gave it an official, unofficial name of Muamua, which means in Hawaiian, scout or messenger. Um, I guess you could call it... Oh, muahahaha! Um, that's just an alternative <laughs> pronunciation. Um, the object was uh, was uh, was kind of like a surprise and not a surprise all at the same time, which is which is interesting. Theory says that that planets like Jupiter sent many planetesimals hurtling out of our solar system or into the sun bi- millions and billions of years ago. Actually. Th- the Jupiter probably sent out most of, of the, of the solar system out, say goodbye, never to see again. Um, now other solar systems should basically do the same thing, right? Uh, so the fact that rocky bodies from other solar systems are entering ours
1: kind of confirms these theories, which is, which is pretty awesome, of course. Bob, even more, right? If you have a solar system that has a hot Jupiter, so basically a Jupiter that migrated all the way into a very close orbit, it could have knocked out everything in the inner solar system.
4: Yeah. Yeah. They could be, yeah, they could be devastating. Get this, uh, extrasolar objects probably pass between the Earth and Sun a few times a year, a few times a year, but we've never seen them because they're, you know, they're very difficult to spot. They're, you know, small, far away, or our telescopes. I uh, just were not up to the task. Now, but one surprise here was the, uh, was that, uh, this asteroid was not a comet. Uh, that was kind of a big surprise. The, the Oort cloud of uh, the outskirts of our solar system, I think it's about a light year away. Uh, we know it's mostly comets. Um, you know, when they, when they send bodies into the inner solar system, it, it's almost always comets, uh, with the very rare asteroid. Now, these are, co- these, this cloud is – think about it. These are objects that were almost ejected, right? But they just barely held on to the gravitational pull of the sun. So perhaps other or clouds are not mostly comets like ours. So that so that's kind of an interesting thing to consider. Uh, it's just weird to think that other solar systems could have these clouds of, of asteroids instead of clouds of comets like, uh, like we have. The biggest surprise though, of course, is the shape of the object, which – Everyone, I think, lots of people have seen that that uh, that artist's uh, rendition of of what this thing looks like in the news. This is very bizarre. Its rotation shows a greatly varying albedo, or basically just the uh, reflectance coefficient of uh, reflectivity, which points to an object ten times longer than it's wide, ten times longer. Now, no object in our solar system varies in brightness this much. At best, you may see something like three to one. But, but not, not ten to one. Try to think of a good analogy. Imagine a spinning sword. Uh, if the sword, the sword would be very bright if you could see its full length, but then once it rotated and you were just looking at the point directed right at you or the hilt, it wouldn't be very bright at all. And this is basically what we're seeing. And it's the best explanation we can come to to, to explain why the brightness varies, uh, by, by an order of magnitude. So clearly it's long and thin. Uh, now many people have been calling it cigar shaped, but I disagree. It's clearly doomsday machine shaped. Um, I think we should be looking for pure anti-proton beams, but I'm just throwing that out there.
1: Um, uh, <laughs> I think it's shaped like the Discovery sh- uh, ship from 2001 A Space Odyssey. Uh, yeah. Fact, it may be, be a spaceship that you know, had a mishap and is just tumbling end over end.
4: Yeah, it's cool to think that, but no. Unfortunately, no. Carrie, Meech, <laughs> Carrie Meech of the University of Hawaii said, our observations are entirely consistent with it being a natural object. Um, so kind of a bummer. But hey, it's still – a
1: spaceship built inside of an asteroid. <laughs> yes. That, that, that well, that's
4: what I was it. thinking too. It's perfect camouflage. Luckily, we may see even more of these in the future because like I said, there's at least two or three of these kind of flying through between the, the, the Earth and the sun every year. That's a lot. Mm -hmm. But now that we've got, you know, upgrades to telescopes like the Pan Stars one, I think we're going to be noticing uh, a lot of these in the future uh, more often. So that'd be really cool to see these things. And who knows? There was even some talk of uh, trying to send, um, uh, some some rocket to the one to this one uh, that they recently saw, but I think that's just too far away at this point, going way too fast. But yeah, it'd be very cool to see because we could, like I said, there's nothing in our solar system that is so skinny and you know and so and so big and so long. So who knows? This could point to new you know different types of solar systems that could produce such biz- bizarre asteroids.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. It's a little very scary good. though to think that there are things whizzing. Through. You know, that close to the Earth, you know, at, at high speeds coming from outside the solar system. We, we might not even see them.
2: You know? Yeah.
4: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, right. Yeah. Boy, and what can we do about
2: one? it, right?
3: There's not, I don't think there's anything we can do about it. Not yet. If you don't see it, nothing.
4: How, if, right. Yeah. How do you, De- how do you defend? To detect it very early, as early as possible is the first thing we got to do. And that's what Pan Stars is doing.
1: Thank you, Pan. Yay. Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors, This Week Sci-Fi.
2: So as Steve knows, it's lonely being a degenerate a-hole unless you have an imaginary flying blue horse to talk to. So this December, Horses fly in sci-fi's twisted new series it's called happy
4: for me the funniest was seeing christopher maloney he said he was the, the cop from uh, law and order special victim unit but here he plays a corrupt ex-cop turned hitman who was adrift in a world of casual murder solo <laughs> sex and don't forget betrayal <laughs>
1: Of course. <laughs> well, it's better than soulless murdering casual sex. Oh, yes.
4: <laughs> <Always>. <laughs> so basically, after a hit gone wrong, his inebriated life is forever changed by this tiny, relentlessly positive, imaginary blue-winged horse whose name happens to be Happy. Happy! Uh, voiced by Patton Oswalt, of course.
3: Nick reluctantly partners up with Happy to find a little girl who is kidnapped by a deranged Santa.
4: That's kind so of strange. Santa. <laughs>
3: <laughs> it's it's like a cop show on acid with this <laughs> twisted redemption story and they're the ultimate odd couple. The show oh, yeah. has one WTF moment after the next. Oh, and it's based on the extremely graphic novel by Grant Morrison and Derek Robertson.
1: Yeah, so check out Happy it premieres December 6th at ten nine Central on Sci-Fi. All right, guys, let's get back to our show.
2: All right, Jay, it's who's that noisy time? All right, last week I played this noisy I'm blown away by this, and you guys don't even know what it is.
1: I have no idea. It's easy to dance to.
2: Here's a couple of guesses that people made. So uh, somebody said, I think this week's, uh," this is Michael Kalonikos said, I think this week's uh, EP is the Beatles song, Good Day Sunshine, except it's being played through some kind of weird synthesizer. Mm-hmm. Well, that would be a really extraordinary and weird synthesizer. But no, that's not correct. But there is a little bit of something there that was worthy mentioning. And I will say that, oh, I got 50, 60 correct responses. Whoa, really? Yeah. Yeah. Whoa. Which was really cool. I, I like to know that the people that pay attention to who's that noisy actually you know know what this is because it is a, a milestone. So mm-hmm. uh, the winner for last week, Rich Rigaldo Uh, He said to SGU this week's Who's That Noisy is a song called Daddy's Car, which was written by artificial intelligence.
1: Oh, cool.
2: Yes. So there are details here. (laughs) Let me sharpen it up a little bit, but in essence, Mm -hmm. he is correct. So scientists at Sony's CSL research lab, they used artificial intelligence software called Flow Machines and the scientists, uh, they load a massive database of songs into into the Flow Machine, and then Flow Machine uses these songs as reference material, combining elements of the songs and, and patterns that it finds in the songs to create a new song. So the scientists can tell the software, as an example, write a song um, in this style of music, or mimic this specific song, that but don't copy it, but give me something that sounds like it. And the song can do it. But before you freak out, the lyrics were not written by the ai and the music still needs to be arranged by a musician and also a professional still needs to mix and master the uh the recording so mm-hmm. but you know i don't want to take away too much from the software because the software is writing the music it's writing the chord changes i also believe it's writing the melody lyrics too no not the lyrics and it's and it is not sung by a human as well but okay but just think about that
1: why does the singer sound like deepak chopra that's what i want to know but <laughs> <laughs> All right. When you, now that you say that, I listen to it again. You know, the song is very derivative, right? I mean, you could—it yep. sounds so familiar. You could see Beach that, Boys yeah, quality to it. Y- y- you could you could see the influence of the songs that they fed into it. Of course, you know what
2: I mean—it's it's a hundred percent derivative because it's based off of the reference material. But but you know, with a sizable database and and in, you know, as the advancements in AI happen. I mean, we're going to be telling computers, make me a Monet. Painting. Yeah. Make me a Beatles sounding song. Mm-hmm. You know, we'll actually build me an army with the corridor. Yeah, that's but, right. But we'll get like, to yeah, the point one. <laughs> where we'll say, yeah, make me a Beatles song written by John or written by Paul in their voice. Yeah. And, and the computer right, will right. be able to do it. I mean, it's going to happen. I just find this to be fascinating. Yeah, write Beethoven's Tenth Symphony. Yeah, I mean, Ooh,
3: or finish Mozart's uh unfinished. Thing.
2: So it it is is related to uh, Bob and I were just talking about Boston Dynamics, right Bob? Yeah. Did you guys see that they have a humanoid robot that's yeah. doing Backflip. backflips and aerial like it's like kind of doing like the uh the ninja, you know, with the ninja course, right. you know what I mean? Like it's like jumping up on making like vertical jumps. You know, picture a humanoid robot Jumping up six feet. Bingo, perfect. Backflip, perfect. I'm sure it falls down a lot, but they should. And show then this, you-
1: other, this other company is making military robots that they're calling Cylons, and they say are <laughs> really effective in, in combat and very independent. Yeah. Uh, I'm really looking uh, forward to that.
2: Nothing to worry about with those. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: I, for one, welcome our new over- robotic
4: overlord. I'm playing with my Cylon right now.
2: So, anyway, we, you know. Yeah, I mean, we are slowly watching.
1: Robots take over the world while we, we create them. Yeah, but Jory, yeah, thank
3: amazing. you for sending that in. As long as we still have the capability to turn them off, I think yeah. we'll, we're okay, at least.
2: Yeah, the, the I mean, almighty immediate kill immediate switch. Um, just, just make Jory, not that kill switch. Ah, Jory actually sent it. me in a, a the second song that they released. I think that one was actually sung by a, a, a robotic voice, you know, like a, a synthesized yeah. voice because the, the lyrics don't make any sense. But it is – Following a melody, and the synthesized voice sounds human because we can simulate the human voice very well today, but I picked this one because i 'm a Beatles fan, and you know I just thought you know people would be able to understand the song better, but it 's happening, so there you have it and let 's uh, jump right into a new noisy, and this noisy was sent in by a listener named Alex Garner. <laughs> It's quite obviously a piano. Mm-hmm. Give me the specifics. That's your task, young Jedi. Email me at WTN at the skepticsguide.org. And please send me in any cool noises you heard, especially anything Christmas related. Let's dive right into the holiday.
1: All right. Thanks, Jay. Hey, we have a great interview coming up with Britt Hermes that we recorded at uh, the recent SciCon. Now, this is going to be about a 20-minute excerpt from a 50-minute full interview. If you are a premium member, then that uh, full interview will be released today at the same time the podcast is released as premium content. So you may want to skip over the abridged version and go right to the full interview. And if you are not a premium SGU member, well, you should consider becoming one. For just $8 a month, you could become an SGU Premium member, support the SGU, support skepticism throughout the multiverse, and get access to extra content like full uncut interviews. Just go to theskepticsguide.org and click on the Become a Member button. All right, let's go on with that interview right now. So we are here with Britt Hermes at SciCon 2017. Britt, welcome to The Skeptics' Guide.
0: Hi, thank you.
1: So you've written for Science-Based Medicine. You were at Nexus uh, with us a few months ago, and you have a very interesting story to tell. You are a former quack, I mean naturopath. <laughs> <laughs> oh my Same god, thing. Same thing. Same thing. Same thing. Tell, so, you know, tell, tell us about your journey. Give us your give us story.
0: Okay, well, um, the quick and dirty story from the beginning is that I had psoriasis as a teenager, and I had it all over. It was very emotionally distressing for me. I went to my mom's dermatologist who was an old doctor and essentially, at least in my memory of the situation, just handed me a script for steroids, said you're going to have this for the rest of your life, kind of suck it up kid, and you know he was out the door. And I remembered trying to pull information out of him like why me? That was a big question for me. And what else can I do to treat this? I had a lot of fear about having psoriasis, you know, forever. Mm-hmm. I wasn't really familiar enough with using Google and stuff at that time. So mm-hmm. I went to the library and I researched, I guess I was just looking up anything psoriasis, not necessarily natural medicine related, but it I ended up finding natural medicine texts. And I read all of this information about the influence of diet, Um, taking anti-inflammatory supplements like fish oil, herbs like turmeric. And the diet and the fish oil really stuck with me. So I came home, and I'm telling my dad this, and I'm clearly distressed. I'm crying. My dad says, okay, you're crying. You're upset. Let's do whatever we need to do to help you feel better. So this was, let's go buy some specialty foods for you. You know, I cut out a lot of refined sugars and sort of cleaned up my diet. And then uh, he went and found a bottle of cod liver oil for me, and I started taking just lots of tablespoons of cod liver oil. Gosh. I know, really disgusting stuff. <clears throat> and
2: that is very, uh, like, fishy, right? So
0: so I was taking this unrefined, unflavored version back in the day, so really nasty. Yeah. I mean, really had to...
4: Choke it down. Yeah,
0: really oh. hard to get down. And at the same time, I'm using the steroid creams, and my skin gets better. And the story in my mind mm. was, look how great natural medicine works. Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. And my skin stayed better. And I started to feel better because I was no longer drinking soda and I was eating better foods. And I started to build this whole story in my mind of how wonderful alternative and natural medicine is. And my evil doctor just wanted to suppress the symptoms, right? This is a classic naturopathic phrase, suppress the symptoms. And that became this driving force for me and this story just started to evolve where I believe that any disease could be treated naturally. Mm -hmm. So down the road, I go to college, I get a degree in psychology. I had a health psychology teacher who was really into natural medicine. He did a lot of motivational interviewing and talked about healthy diet. He actually sold supplements to his students. So he was really, yeah, yeah, doing stuff he should not have been doing, yeah. But he was saying all the right words. For me, and just feeding this idea, I decided that health psychology or this idea of using lifestyle to treat disease was where I wanted to go. I'm researching grad schools. I find Bastier. And now I'm reading phrases on the Bastier webpage that say things like science-based natural medicine, Oof. you know, rigorous Whoa. curriculum, groundbreaking research the best of modern medicine and evidence-based natural therapies. And I thought, oh, this is brilliant. How come How come everybody's not doing this? It right. sounds, sounds
1: wonderful. It mm-hmm. sounds
0: wonderful. So I totally believed all of the marketing. And next thing you know, I'm enrolled in Bastier, going to school and fully drinking the Kool-Aid. It
2: yeah. mm-hmm. was delicious.
0: It was really yeah. tasty. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> so did you feel... At this point, right then, if we take a snapshot of uh, you at your happiest, did you feel like you were experiencing privileged information, like you were one of the few, the lucky? The enlightened. The enlightened that stumbled into something wonderful?
0: Yeah, there definitely was a sense that I knew better. Yeah. That I knew better and I was being given special information. and, And what a privilege to go to school at a place like Bastyr and learn medicine plus some. Mm-hmm. And how, how fortunate and they were. I am. They
2: were, was that part of their, um, story that they were selling?
0: Yeah, for sure. So they, they really lead students to believe that you're trained in all of the traditional medical sciences. Mm-hmm. Plus, you learn all of this other useful information. Yeah. But unfortunately, this useful information is just pseudoscience. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's, it's homeopathy. It's, Water therapies, it's energy medicine. Just out of
2: curiosity, how how expensive was the education?
0: Forty five thousand a year. So after I decided to leave leave naturopathy I went back to school and I ended up getting a master's in biomedical research and I had to retake real science classes. And in that moment, in getting my master's, I realized that the real sciences that I took were not taught at a graduate level.
1: They were crap. Yeah.
0: They were crap. Oh, watered yeah. down. They were definitely watered down. They were definitely at an undergraduate level. I was not where I needed to be in order to do a master's.
2: But we're, we're missing a big part of the story yes, here. Yes, you are. Right. And, I, and I'm dying. I'm all about story. Okay. So, all right. So we hit the peak. You're happy. You're you're dancing on your way to classes. Yeah. Yeah. Money's flying out the window. <laughs> yeah. And then what happened? Like, where, where, yeah. what was the, the click over to reality?
0: Right. So, I graduated last year in 2011. I got licensed. I worked in a, you know, a fake residency position. So, naturopaths have these fake residency positions. What's the
1: degree? What's the degree?
0: N- ND. Naturopathic doctor. ND. ND. N-D. N-D.
1: Yeah. We're yeah. not a doctor. We're not a say. doctor. Yeah, right.
0: Yeah. Uh, so, in Washington, I can call myself a doctor or a physician. I could call myself a primary care physician. So I, I practiced fully believing I was a primary care doctor. I worked in Washington for about a year and a half. And then I moved to Arizona, where I got licensed and worked there as well. And there's also a really broad scope of practice for naturopaths there. So in Arizona, I could actually call myself a naturopathic medical doctor. Wow. So I could use the initials NMD, Oh, that which is, is totally, deceptive. Mm-hmm. totally deceptive, totally deceptive. Uh, and I got a job in a sort of an integrative Clinic there it was all naturopaths on staff, but there was also a chiropractor, massage therapist, and acupuncturist. So we we did this sort wow. of you know like woo woo integrative. Oh yeah, it's
2: holistic. Wow.
0: Exactly, yeah. exactly. And we would work. You would also uh, inter refer to each other. It was yeah. a nice little business model, oh, that. right? That's like a, no a that's it's like a professor in
2: a college making you buy their book that they wrote for the course that you're taking. Isn't that <laughs> convenient? So you have to buy your three hundred dollar textbook to take your class. Oh. Wow, interesting. <laughs> But all right, so keep going. So I'm
0: there. So I'm in Arizona. Yeah. I'm using these fancy initials. Uh, my boss specializes, my former boss specializes in treating cancer patients. Mm-hmm. So Ouch. I'm seeing sort of a, a a regular clientele, although, you know, I'm doing a lot more woo-woo stuff now. I'm doing a lot of detoxification, a lot of intravenous therapies, but I'm also building my practice. So my former boss says, you're pretty slow, you're building your practice. I'm busy, all these cancer patients. Why don't I train you on how to do some of these naturopathic cancer therapies? And I said, that's great. I'll make more money. I can sort of work as your little assistant and-
4: New skill set.
0: Exactly. New skill set, learn how to mix these fancy IVs. So I was mixing fancy IVs, you know, vitamin C and glutathione and herbs and all sorts of stuff and learning to give it to patients. Um, Of course, you know, in their arm, in the vein, but also I was learning how to do intravenous injections through a cancer port. Mm -hmm. So kind of dangerous. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Scary. Scary.
2: So for our audience, a cancer port is...
0: Is uh, something that's placed underneath the skin to have a direct sort of intravenous... It's permanent, right? Or
1: temporary... Yeah, long-term. It's a long-term venous access, yeah. yeah.
0: So we started, or my boss started um, giving many patients this drug called Ukraine. It was originally made in the country Ukraine, or its manufacturer is Ukrainian, so he named it after where he comes from. And shipments of this drug were arriving from overseas, and the patients that were on it were sort of on a kind of chemotherapy-like drug schedule, where they would taper up to a certain dose, so one a week, two a week, three a week, and then maintain this dose, and then taper back down. And we would do cycles of this. I guess, which is something similar to a chemotherapy. But what cycle. would the effect
4: be on them? It wouldn't be chemotherapy like, like in terms of well, hair loss or so what, how would?
0: they believe that it did have chemotherapy like effects. And so what was interesting is that either patients would say that they don't feel anything or they would actually complain of chemotherapeutic like side effects, like feeling fatigue or, um, nauseous, for example. Anything
4: not subjective like hair loss or? No. But not, yeah, none of that, none of that. No,
0: no, no. Yeah, all stuff that's hard to measure. Right. I think. And one day, oh, and so patients were paying thousands of dollars for this drug. No insurance. No insurance. Wow. Thousands of dollars out of pocket. And the way that the clinic collected fees is that they would require payment in cash upfront before Ouch. we had the drug. And, uh, the money would go through a money wiring system to, to Austria the- where the drug was being mailed from. And this happened outside the clinic. So really, Sketching your faces, really. Oh <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> yeah, just, yeah. Uh, I'm an accountant, so yeah. when I hear about cash <laughs>
3: transactions and yeah. foreign, yeah, uh, you know, uh, money orders and these things. Right, the red flags start going off, and right,
0: day. right, exactly. Oh man. And one day oh. the drug didn't arrive, and so the patients are really nervous because they're on these strict drug protocols. And so my boss was telling patients that if you don't maintain the schedule that we tell you the drug isn't going to work, the therapy isn't going to work. So now all of a sudden, the drug isn't showing up. They've paid $10,000 to get this drug up front. And, and he,
4: he kept no buffer of, of drugs. I think case. I know where this is going. Oh. Yeah, so do I, yeah.
0: So people are concerned. So I say to my boss, the Ukraine hasn't showed up. What's going on? And he said, don't worry about it. The FDA probably compensated it. So we'll just wait for the next shipment or something like that. But definitely the FDA probably confiscated okay. it. And so I uh, got this perplexed look on my face, like, well, why would the FDA confiscate this package? You know, it didn't, I hadn't yeah. thought about yeah. it. So all of a sudden I was trying to figure out why would the FDA confiscate it? And then he realized that I look puzzled and I'm putting things together. Oh. And he says, don't worry about it.
3: Yeah, in other words, shut up.
0: Yeah, exactly. And so that was the end of that conversation. So I go home and I Google it. And so I'm Googling the drug first, and I'm finding all of these sketchy web pages. And then I'm trying to figure out what it means to import this drug. And I'm finding out that this drug is not FDA approved. Mm. And then I find out that he's, you know, and then I'm realizing, okay, he's been giving a non-FDA approved drug to cancer patients. And then I realize, okay, under his orders, I've been giving a non-FDA mm. approved drug to cancer patients. And trying to figure out what this all means, which is that it's a federal crime. Yeah. To do this. Whoa. In hindsight, like looking at it it's, it's kind of obvious. Yeah. But there's so many things that naturopaths do that are not FDA approved that it actually it took me a couple hours on the internet of searching and figuring this out to really mm-hmm. put this all together. So it
2: really was like one day to the next. You were all in. Yeah. You heard the, the doctor talk, you went home yeah. and did research and then yeah. and then at some point that night you had a whole... oh. Yeah. What the hell am I yeah. wrapped up in? Yeah.
0: So I found out this information and that I was potentially, you know, that my boss was basically performing this federal crime mm-hmm. on a Friday. I was researching lawyers the next morning. Monday morning, I'm in a lawyer's office. Oh, wow. Monday afternoon, I'm quitting my job, mm-hmm. which I knew I was going to do. But I I needed to have, I needed to consult with a lawyer first and really, I needed to confirm that Everything that I had found out and what I thought was real right. was real. So, was the Lord real. did confirm it. Yeah. Yeah. And he expressed grave concern.
3: Your world changed overnight. Literally. Yeah.
1: Overnight. yeah. Hey, what, what is the drug, by the way? Do you know any? What's the Ukraine? What yeah. Is it? So,
0: it's, um, it's made from a plant called greater teledonium. and the manufacturer was mixing this herbal extract with chemotherapeutic alkaloids. So it does have some chemotherapeutic alkaloids that could have some anticancer effect, which is why maybe some patients were experiencing like some, nausea and stuff, right? Yeah, really dilu- or diluted yeah. down with this herbal extract or something. Yeah. And the manufacturer who was making it right around this time. So the reason probably the drug stopped arriving was because its manufacturer who was living in Vienna was arrested in Vienna because it turned out that he was relabeling and continuing to sell expired product.
2: Mm -hmm. Oh, okay.
0: (laughs) So it's possible that our patients right prior to that were actually receiving expired product. How long were you working for the doctor's office at this point? I think for about a year I was there.
2: So did people die? Did people go into remission during that time?
0: uh, No one went into remission. No, no one went into remission. I mean, a lot of the patients who were receiving this drug were really sick, if not terminally ill. So people people died.
2: What I I want to All know right. about the quitting. I want to know was was okay. any drama with that.
0: Yeah. Oh my god, yeah. <laughs> so, um yeah, so that was phase 1. Yeah. That sort of rocked my world. I'm suddenly unemployed.
2: Well, wait, did you is there a story to be told about you going in on Tuesday or Monday saying oh, god, I am it was not journalism. awful. I got to hear it.
0: <laughs> you you want to hear it. <laughs> I love the okay. Horror. So, I reported my boss to the Arizona board first because I was afraid that he was going to try to intimidate me and, um, and talk me out of reporting. What
4: board? What board is this?
0: So, naturopaths in Arizona self-regulate. There's an Arizona naturopathic physicians medical board that's made up by naturopaths. And uh, yeah. you can submit complaints to them, which I did.
4: My guess would be that they'd be okay with him doing that, though, because
1: that's part—that's part of it.
4: Yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah.
1: Generally speaking, that it's worthless. They protect themselves. Yeah. That self-regulating right. naturopaths yeah. is like. So that's of part of no the story. Value. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah.
0: So um, I reported his behavior first and sent that off via email or something, and then I went in, and um, I had my husband drive me because I was a mess, and I had him wait in the car in the parking lot. And I went in, and I had a typed letter of resignation, and I asked to meet with my boss and his, um, his partner, and we met in my office. And I started with what I had found, which was, this drug is not FDA approved. This makes what you did a federal crime. And I've talked with a lawyer who's confirmed all of this. And now that I know I can't work for you. I don't want to work for you. And I just want to let you know that I'm going to report you to the board and also to the attorney general. And I asked him if he knew that what he was doing was a crime. And he responded that he knew, he said that he knew it was in the gray zone, was Mm -hmm. how he put it. And that just made me furious. That was, and then I sort of I had a hard time after that because then I understood that he willingly...
4: Put you in the gray zone.
0: Yes, put it, it, me in the gray zone. It's not in the
1: gray zone. No. no. It's, no. Let's it's be not. clear.
4: Not
0: in the gray zone. Right. But he the willingly put scenario. me in this position. Right. Yeah. And intentionally, and when I asked him about this drug and what was going on with it and to sort of teach me some information about it, he purposely withheld this information yep. from me. So he didn't even allow me to... To make a decision. He didn't do a full
4: disclosure to you as he should have. Uh Exactly,
0: exactly. And, uh, it wasn't clear to me that his business partner understood this detail of it either.
2: Oh, okay. That's, that's interesting. So the business partner didn't. She
0: was very upset. She, so she was in tears. I was in tears. And then he tried to intimidate me and he said, you know, if you are going to report me, you're going to go down too. Mm -hmm. And all of this type of behavior. So it was a very contentious, terrible conversation. And then I had to go back to work there for a month. I had to keep working there for a month because if you just leave a practice, it can be patient abandonment. So I had right, to yeah, be around for another month and provide some sort of continuity of care and to see patients in the final days and transfer them to other,
2: that must other have
0: doctor. Been, it was horrific. That
2: must have been so Oh my God. I'm so sorry to hear that. I mean, yeah. I, I've never even heard of that. I, mean, Steve, yeah, you you must have, I didn't know that. Yeah. So you had to have a transition. Now, meanwhile, what's he doing to you?
0: Yeah, he's intimidating me. You know, we're not talking, you know, if I see him in the office. So I planned my schedule to work when he wouldn't be there as much as I could. But, you know, he was very intimidating, mm-hmm. We're you know, standing tall, staring at me, mean face.
2: So what did he end up giving the patients as a medicine when his supplies weren't being replenished?
0: Nothing. So they all just stopped. The treatment just stopped.
2: So then, that's the right. Arizona board did what?
0: Yeah. So, so this was happening, and it took some time for the Arizona board to investigate. But they essentially delivered my boss, my former boss, a letter of reprimand that said, "We received this complaint. You shouldn't do it. Don't do it again."
3: Mm-hmm. Not and even a slap on the wrist. Not even a slap on the wrist. Right. And the board had,
0: wag. yeah, the board's report that's posted online didn't get the facts right. So they wrote in the report that my boss had voluntarily stopped using the drug, which of course is not the truth. Mm-hmm. It had just stopped arriving because its manufacturer was in jail probably. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
3: So there's a whole new level of frustration with so that. So there's a report. whole new level
0: of frustration. Also in the meantime, you know, I got a phone call from a long time mentor and good friend of mine who's a very important person in the naturopathic profession. He served as the president for the American Association of Naturopathic Physicians. And he's calling me to tell me that this isn't a big deal and that I should just go back to work for my boss and that he said, no one got hurt. You're the only one who cares.
1: Wow.
0: And and to just get over it, basically.
1: Was that a big wake-up call in Yes. Yeah, I would imagine.
0: That was devastating. Yeah. That was absolutely devastating. Yeah. And I got off the phone with him, and I was more upset, I think, in that moment than I was, you know, or just as upset. It was absolutely devastating. It was basically... He was, in my mind, just telling me that this is okay. Naturopaths can do whatever they want. Yeah. They can break the laws. We all do it.
2: Yeah. yeah.
0: Get over it. The, you're, he even said, you're a naturopath after all.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're one of us, so drink oh, even goodness. more Kool-Aid. Yeah. Yeah. So what's great, you know, there's the hero part of the story is that you're, you did not have motivated reasoning kick in and wipe this from, your, from the front of your mind. Meaning, like, you actually took it on the chin and said, wait a second, this is wrong. And your brain didn't do some fancy footwork to make you be okay with it because you had invested, you know, a decade of your life to get to this position. A lot of money. And money.
1: So, yeah, it's it's, it's fascinating, you know, because you've been on both sides now, right? And and there was a time when you were looking at science-based medicine, were you saying at Nexus as – the enemy, right? And what was that like, first of all? I mean, it's just fascinating for me to get to rare opportunity to get, you know, a view of what we do from the other side. Like, so what were you, what was your thoughts about that? And then how did that shift for you? I mean, because that was a complete 180 degree
0: turn. Right, So as a naturopath, you mean, what were my thoughts about, yeah, so a lot of what I was exposed to as a naturopath was Stephen Barrett Mm -hmm. Um, and then you and Gorski Mm -hmm. and I, you know, the the running thought was, you don't know, you don't know. Yeah. And I, I used to have sort of like this delusional kind of fantasy where I was like, well, no, if I, if I met you, Mm -hmm. I would be able to talk to you and I can talk science. I can talk medicine. I can talk about the soap note and, you know, Mm -hmm. throw out medical words and things like this and, and convince you that I'm medically trained. Because the crux of it is that I really believed I was medically trained. Right. I didn't know what I didn't know. Oh wow! Know. Yeah. And so, and I thought the only problem was is that you you guys were so close-minded. Yeah. You know, you never took the time to come to Bastier to think about, or you know, take the time to learn about what I'm learning, to know mm-hmm. that um, that is legitimate. So I could really just sort of turn off that whatever that cognitive dissonance was, or whatever you know. Whatever problem I was yeah. having with with that argument, so, you know, people often say to me, "Oh, you could have done more good from the inside," which I do not believe. No I do what? not believe it's but-
1: it's no because it, it, I, I I agree with you that it's not true because it's not open. To revision, right. you know, it's like it, it's not self-regulating, right? You know, so it, it doesn't have a system by which it corrects itself. There's no self-correcting mechanism within chiropractic or naturopathy or acupuncture or homeopathy or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so, no, they, they can't be regulated from the inside. They can't be reformed from the inside. That's been tried with chiropractic too; utterly mm-hmm. fails. Yep. If they were going to reform themselves, they would
2: have. You right. know, they wouldn't be where they are, where they are now. Right. So, so Britt, the the guy that you work for, did. Did he ever get in trouble in any way?
0: Nope. No trouble. Slap on the wrist. Slap yeah. on the wrist. He's still, still, practicing, still practicing. Still treats cancer patients. Yeah, still right. highly still respected in the their profession. Money. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. He's called me a criminal.
2: Oh, yeah. Of course. Oh, you're, you're a yeah. right. traitor now, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Well, welcome to the team. Thanks. <laughs> and thank you so much. Like, this was a fascinating interview. I really, I, wow. What a story.
0: Thank you. Thanks. Thanks thank for you. having me.
2: It's time for Science or
0: Fiction.
1: Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fictitious. Then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. We have a theme this week, but the theme is based upon a news item. I don't know if I've ever done this before. Is one science news item that I was able to derive four facts from. So these are four things about this one news item, which has to do with how smart are carnivores? So I'll tell you what they did in the research is that they actually counted the number of neurons in the brains of different members of the carnivore family. So these are questions about the results of the comparisons that they made. Got it? Got it. All right, here we go. Item number one, dogs have twice the neuronal density as cats. Item number two, on average, domesticated species have significantly lower neuronal density than their wild counterparts. Item number three, contrary to what the researchers expected to find, carnivorous species did not have greater neuronal density than prey species. And item number four, The raccoon was an outlier among the carnivores with a neuronal density equal to that of primates. Bob, go first.
4: Uh, Okay. Twice. Dogs have twice the neuronal density as cats. Twice. That seems a little much. Um, Blah, blah. On average, domesticated species have significantly lower neuronal density. Oh, interesting. So if you're domesticated, you get stupid. Hmm, I can kind of see that, of course. It's really easy to see that, but maybe too easy. Uh, let's look at the, th- the third one. Carnivores basically are not s- smarter than prey. Really? Why would they expect that? Cause I, I, I think it's like a, um, you know, it's a, um, oh, what do you call that? I mean, it's a back and forth uh, between the two, you know, prey's got to get smarter to defeat, to prevent getting eaten, but then th- the prey has to get smarter to eat. So why why would they think that? Whatever. Um, let's see. And the raccoon, yeah, it's another real easy one to buy into because we know we've all seen some crazy awesome stuff that uh, raccoons can do. (laughs) Just
3: a few weeks ago, we talked
4: about. Uh, It was an outlier among the neuronal. See, neuronal density. I mean, even that. I mean, okay, what does that really mean? How significant is that?
1: So, I mean, the premise of this is that that's basically how smart you are, right? So, it's how rich your Neuronal network is so. This is at the same size, right? That's why it's density. So if you take two animals that are the same size with the same size brain, you know, one of them may have twice as many neurons as the other, which means in the in the species with fewer neurons, they have more other kinds of cells in their brain, you know, but they don't have as many neuronal connections. So you know, I don't know if that exactly translates to how "quote unquote" smart the species is. That's a pretty good estimate. You know, it's what a I pretty mean? good indicator. Yeah, it's a pretty good indicator.
4: Yeah, Well, but what if you've got a higher neuronal density but a much smaller brain? It might kind of even out. Well, but right? the, but
1: these because they're all within the Carnivora family, they're similar. The, yeah, they're all pretty much on the same line in terms of the brain size to body size. They're all on the same curve.
4: All right, good to know then. All right, so um, let's see. So I, I will I will believe that dogs are smarter than cats. Uh, love cats, but I think in just terms of pure smarts, I'd go with the dogs. Domestication makes you stupider. Can kind of see that. You're just not on, on the ball when you're being fed and pet, petted all day. All right. So carnivores do not have, I'm going to go with, I'm going to go with three. Uh, the finding that, uh, supposedly that carnivorous species do not have greater neuronal density than prey. I'll say that's fiction.
1: Okay. Jay.
2: Okay. So Bob, you were talking about the, uh, On average, domesticated species have significantly lower neuronal density than their wild counterparts. Yeah. How freaking smart is the dog? Think about it. Think about the life it gets to have. (laughs) Right? It's pretty (laughs) damn smart if you ask me. For what you said, they get pet all day. They get treats. They don't have any responsibility. I mean, come on. Come on, Bob. All right, so dogs have twice the neuronal density as cats. I don't think so. Not twice. I, I just don't see that. Um, going back to uh, this other one here, uh, domesticated species have significantly lower neuronal density than their wild counterparts. Uh, significantly lower. What, what does "significantly lower" mean? You know, what percentage are we talking about? But I, I don't see that than the, than a wild counterpart. You know, we're we're breeding them for behavior and for looks, but I don't know how much that 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 breeding is going to affect. The, the, the neuronal density. I just don't see that one. So that one's on my list. Um, and then the one that Bob picked carnivore species do, uh, do not have greater neur- neuronal density than their prey. Yeah, so I mean, I, first off, there's lots of variabilities here. Now, Steve's—you're not, not talking about like a bird eating a worm. You're talking more about like a tiger eating a gazelle, right? Or a lion eating a, a gazelle
1: among mammals. There, I'm talking about among mammals, right? right.
2: Okay, all right. That—that's a good. That's good for clarity. Um,
1: yeah, trying to control for other things, right? So there, obviously, you can't compare mammals to reptiles or insects or whatever. You, so controlling for all other variables, did 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 a carnivore have more? The same or less, you know, neurons than a, a similar animal that it that it preys upon or that is preyed upon.
2: Did, carnivores did not have greater neuronal density than their prey. All right, so I I would believe that. I would believe also the last one about the raccoons, um, saying they have neuronal density equal to that of primates just by their behavior. You know, raccoon raccoons are uh, super smart, crazy with the hands. They're freaking rascals. Gary so, yeah. with the eyes. Yeah, totally, right? <laughs> Steve, what am I trying to say? They're uh, marsupials, part of the marsupial family. Oh, really? are, are they? <laughs> no. No, no. It's a, it's a Jerky Jer- Boy's quote. Jer- oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> it got me. I do not believe that dogs have twice the neuronal density as cats. That, that is the fiction.
1: Okay, Evan.
3: I agree with Jay. I think it's the one about dogs and cats. And I would imagine uh, evolution has a lot to say here. Cats uh, go way, way, way back, you know, very, very far back. So they've had quite a long history of development in lots of ways, including I'm sure their brains, neuronal density being a part of that. So I think that one's the fiction.
1: So Evan – and Jay, you guys think that uh, dogs are not smarter than cats. And Bob, you think that uh, the one about carnivorous species did not have greater neural density than prey species is the fiction. So you think that the carnivorous species are smarter than prey species. So you both agree on two and four. So we'll do those uh, first. Uh, we'll start with four. The raccoon was an outlier among the carnivores with a neural density equal to that of primates. You guys all think that one is science. And that one is science. Nice,
4: way yeah. to go, Rex. Yeah,
1: raccoons are actually omnivores, but you know, and and we're not, And I kind of, when I say carnivorous species or carnivores, I'm not necessarily talking about the family Carnivora, but right. just among non-herbivore, you know, non-prey species. Uh, raccoons, man, they're just freaking smart, right? They, they, uh, of all non-primate mammals. Right. They're probably the smartest, and the, you know they're they're the only, as far as I know, with this study, they're the only non-primate mammal to be shown to have like the brain power of primates. You know, yeah,
4: that's incredible. I mean, I was yeah. a little skeptical that it was quite up to the level of uh, primates. Yeah, they were damn, surprised that's at how awesome.
1: Yeah, we were just talking recently, a few episodes back, about how smart uh, yeah. raccoons are. Although they make horrible pets, by the way. Just by coincidence, why, why
2: is that? How, what well, because.
1: Because first of all, they're wild animals, right? They have not been domesticated. So you can't really cage them. Um, and if you leave them in your house, they will destroy your house. That's just – there's no way you can keep them from doing that. They just can't help themselves. Yeah. They will just – that's how, what they do, you know? And th- their their go-to behavior when they're under stress is to bite. <laughs> I call the big they're biters. Bitey. Yeah. They're, yeah.
2: <laughs> they're biters. It's,
1: so they're just not good pets. What's okay, interesting but, is you know my wife just came across a site, um, a, a video looking at the South American, uh, basically a South American raccoon family member called the coati, um, and they are being they are legal to sell as pets in Texas.
0: Uh, oh, so it was a
1: video of a pet store in Texas who were selling them. But the, but reading about them, it's like they're just as bad as North America, North American raccoons. They bite. They're, you know, very high energy, very active. You know, they're very destructive. Not good pets. <laughs> yeah. You know, you know what the best pets are? Dogs and cats. Because they're actually <laughs> domesticated. Yeah, right. They yeah. have, they have yeah. all oh, wow. the properties that we like in pets. Every other sort of pseudo pet or exotic pet, there's always something, either they have a musky odor or they're biters or, you know, they don't, their behavior is wacky or they're nocturnal. I mean, like, you know, that's the other thing. Raccoons are nocturnal. Right? Keep, there's Keep you up at night. There's always some deer, deer killer. Otherwise, they would already be pets. They would be popular as pets. <laughs> um, <laughs> anyway, someone's probably going to write in saying, I have this as a pet and it's wonderful. Sure. sure you do. Fine. Yeah. But like fennec foxes are supposed to be okay, but still they're very, very high energy. But um, apparently. But dogs and cats. I had, I had a friend who had and, a fennec fox. Yeah. He loved it. They're adorable as hell. They may be worth it if you could manage it. But every site I've read said absolutely do not get a raccoon as a pet. Yeah. Okay. Let's go to number two. On average, domesticated species have significantly lower neuronal density than their wild counterparts. You guys all think this is science. Uh, This was something that the researchers expected to find because uh, the theory is that when we domesticated animals, they did become dumber, if you will, because they don't need – the the cunning to survive in the wild, right? right? They don't have sense. to hunt their own food. That's it right. makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. But this one is the fiction.
3: Damn! Whoa. Oh, they did, that's not what they found. Bitch. They oh found that the
1: domesticated animals were just as smart as their wild counterparts. And that wow. makes sense too, actually, when you think about it, because, and this will also play a, a role in number one, because dogs do have twice the neural density as cats. Dogs are a lot smarter than cats. Um, and again, people will probably come at me with their anecdotes, but here's the thing that you need to: <laughs> this is what the study show. They'll have their out, Steve. This is what the study showed: yeah. that um, you know what takes a lot of brain power, socialization.
2: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, right? It takes yeah. a lot of brain
1: power, and dogs are are just really socialized to humans. You know, they are really, really socialized, and they and you know they're, they're more trainable. They engage yes. in more complicated behavior. When you really think about it. You know, you think about how trainable dogs are compared to cats; it, it makes total sense, and how so much more socially complex dogs are than cats. And it Steve, also think sense. about
2: think about how little pseudoscience dogs engage in. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> 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 that's right. Um, oh, so my dog dousing last week. <laughs>
1: Oh my God. <laughs> and so, yeah, so that number one is also science. Uh, dogs do have twice the um, neuronal density as cats. So the, uh, the study found that, again, this com- uh, controlling for size, uh, the a dog of the size studied had 530 million cortical neurons while cats only had about 250. Of course, that compares to 16 billion in humans, just to put things into context. Wow. We have massive, <laughs> massive cortices, massive brains. Mm-hmm. And then let's just go on number three, then we'll talk about the study some more. So, that also means that the third one, uh, contrary to what the researchers expected to find, carnivorous species did not have greater neuronal density than prey species. That one is science. They did expect that prey species were dumber because. Um. Again, hunting, especially collaborative or cooperative hunting, thought to be a very cognitively demanding task that would require smarter animals. While while lots of prey species just hide in the herd, you know, doesn't take so much intelligence just to yeah, stand together. But they found that no, they actually are. They're just as smart as the predators who prey upon them and i think jay're you 're probably hit upon it that in the arms race, I think is the term you were looking for, the arms may race between may. predator and prey it has kept them pretty equal. you know you have to be as smart as your predator if you 're going to try to evade them uh, is essentially the new way of looking at it based upon this study they found some other things as well. Uh, Interesting relationships between the size of carnivores and how smart they were. So generally speaking, smaller animals were smarter than bigger animals, but the dog being the peak. So now if you do look at the carnivora family, not just carnivores, but the carnivora family, dogs were the smartest. And bears were the dumbest. Bears Uh, were the dumbest? Why? In (laughs) fact, cats – have ten times the neuronal density as a bear. Wow! What? A cat has about the same number of neurons as a bear, even though the bear's brain is ten times bigger.
2: Wow! Whoa! Ooh.
1: So there's just something about being real, and that was a general trend that once you got bigger than a dog, your neuronal density went down. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it's not interesting. Dogs were kind of at the peak of neurons. Dogs were this the smartest carnivorous. See what did
3: I tell you. So the yeah. trade-off of body size, brain size, and neuronal so rents, that's the, yeah, the, the dog is optimized in that.
1: To yeah, and, so, and the other factor they this is their speculation is that the other factor at work here is that brains are very hungry organs. They're metabolically extremely active, especially the neurons, right? Neurons are extremely metabolically active and they need to be fed all the time. You know, like even when you're resting, your brain – if you're awake, your brain is really active. And so when you get bigger, the the metabolic demands of feeding a, a, a brain with comparatively a lot of neurons, you know what I mean? Like if, if a bear had the neuronal density of a cat – that would be a very hungry organ to feed probably and they just can't do it. They just, they just can't eat enough food. So there's a, there's another selective pressure there to make the brain less metabolically hungry and so that you get less – lower neuronal density even at the bigger sizes. So that's what they think is going on there, okay. which is interesting. So you take – you know you look at all this data and basically what they're saying is socialized species, even if they're domesticated, are – are smart, um, you know, so the domestication doesn't necessarily make animals dumb. Prey species can be just as smart as the predators that they're evading. Dogs are smarter than cats, if you want to put it simply. I mean, again, it's hard to define quote-unquote smart, but they have a richer neurological existence than cats do is the way they put it. And cool. raccoons are freaking smart. Yeah, That's what this study shows. Very interesting. I love this study. Very interesting stuff.
3: Uh did it say what yeah. bigfoot's uh,
4: neuronal density? <laughs> bigfoot.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, but they they would probably be in the primate, right? I would think uh, so. On the primate curve.
4: Yeah, but didn't they just do a study showing that uh, some of the the yet the supposed yeti DNA was bear DNA so yes. no, they are they are stupid, <laughs> right. right? Well they they don't <laughs> they exist. Yeah, so
1: yeti and bigfoot don't exist, but yeah, they, they had the yeti the trace Findings of the Yeti were, were positively identified as coming from bears and something else, too, like dogs. I think it was dogs and bears. Oh, mine. But that no bears. Yeti. <laughs> <laughs> Not Yeti, at least. <laughs> <laughs> Not Yeti. <Nah. laughs> all right. That was, that was bad, Evan. That was really bad. Uh, all right. Evan, give us a quote.
3: Magnificent desolation. Ooh. Buzz Aldrin's first words upon setting foot yeah. on the moon. Awesome. Yeah. He, he, and Mars, the t- title of his book. Um, that he wrote 2010, uh, very appropriately so. And he talked a little bit more about it. He was part of a Reddit conversation back in 2014, and he talked a little bit more in detail about those moments, those first minutes that, that he was on the surface of the moon, second person on the moon, second after bo- after Neil Armstrong. So he says that the magnificence of human beings, humanity, planet Earth, maturing the technologies... Imagination and courage to expand our capabilities beyond the next ocean, to dream about being on the moon, and then taking advantage of increases in technology and carrying out that dream. Achieving that is magnificent testimony to humanity.
1: Yeah, Tell me what you guys think. I've always had the profound sense that we got to the moon at the earliest possible moment that we technologically could have, meaning that we really couldn't have done it in any previous decade, even if we tried really hard. Right. Didn't it just seem that way that the, te- you know, we were just barely able to do it with the technology that we yeah, had. I mean, we, right.
2: we, we were right on the cusp. I mean, a lot of the technology, Steve, after JFK gave the speech, yeah. I mean, we put a lot, a lot of resource into developing brand new technology to get there. But I don't think that we could have done it a decade earlier.
1: Yeah. Like I wonder like in the 1940s, let's say, or like, say, right after World War II, if we said, all right, within 10 or 20 years, we are going to put somebody on the moon. Could we even have done it? Would it even have been possible with the technology that we had at that time? I, I can't so. say that it would be impossible. You know, it's almost kind of like steampunk at that point, you know, where the tech, yeah. the application of the technology goes way beyond the basic technology. If you know what I mean, that's kind of what steampunk is. But I just wonder, like, could you, could you get to the moon with steampunk or not or did you really need the early computer technology and all the other things that we had at that point in time it certainly would i think have been exponentially more difficult yeah. maybe not impossible but so much more difficult well, but it's well, cool
4: i get the feeling that if we started like a decade earlier you know maybe we could have done it by you know the early to mid 60s instead of the late 60s you know you you get incremental you know be kind of incremental Improvements, yeah. uh, or with more or maybe not. More maybe
1: it would just have been months earlier. I don't know. Like I don't. Yeah, you have yeah. to it's wonder. Like,
4: how kind of re- replay history? Yeah, to find out. I mean, we'll
1: never know the answer to this question. But just—it's an interesting thought experiment, and I've often was fascinated by that question because it just always, and maybe that just the way the whole Apollo mission was was presented. And and everything I've read about it made it seem like we were just barely able to do this, you know. Yeah, but just and there's
4: many examples. One example that comes to mind is the is the idea, the fact that uh, the very first databases that were created were were created to track all the the thousands upon thousands of components that went into the hardware that they built. Yeah, uh, you know, right. these are the very first databases. And now, you know, you think of database, It's like how, how could we couldn't even live our life as we live it without databases? Something that's kind of like as you know as innocuous as a database yeah. it, was yeah, birthed, it was kind of birthed in the uh in that era in the sixties and could you have even done that could you have built a sophisticated enough rocket without the you know the the you know having a database to track everything uh you know who knows right and of course like but the maybe first, not, maybe not
1: the first mercury launches were done with human you know, calculators yeah. right yeah computers yeah. but they were rapidly transitioning over to mechanical computers. Right, right. Um, And you wonder if the moon was would have just been too much. Or, if you know, I guess we, they could have brute-forced their way, I guess, to the moon even without the computers, but it just seems like it would have just – the probability okay. of failure would have gone way. Well. Oh, yeah, there's so much that's more a, risky. Yeah, one way to think about
2: it is that risky they might have pulled
1: them. it off, but the risk would have been
2: massive. If you ever play Kerbal Space Program, a yeah, video it's game, fun. yes. Really mm-hmm. fun. I mean, I mean, you get a really – very interesting perspective, and healthy f- respect for how complicated this is. And that's a video game. I mean, here's a humbling thing to do: look at a jet, a, a rocket engine, a modern rocket engine without without the sheeting around it. Like when you look at just the engine and you see all of the connections yeah. that they have to make. That's like it lo- it's insane how complicated those devices are. And that people fully understand what's going on and, you know, just, just, yeah. just how much is going. The it's
1: engineering not- is unbelievable. At the Air and Space Museum, they have a, you know, exploded a jet engine, meaning they they show all the parts, you know. And it is unbelievably complicated.
3: And it has to all be calibrated, working exactly correct within its tolerances. It's yeah, that's why right. When you
2: see SpaceX use retro rockets to land one of their ships from orbit or from, you know, yeah. suborbit. I mean, that is it's borderline like wow can we actually do that you know like I, I, it blows my mind i watch every single launch i end up watching at one point or another i'm just blown away by it and it, and it's it, it is a testament to human achievement and how how much we can affect reality like how much we can yeah. squeeze out of reality
4: yeah, and not just human humanity. Um, I mean, we're we're now creating things, and especially in terms of like software, pure software creation. We're we have these constructs that no human understands. Yeah. No single human can encompass and it's it. It's just going to get worse, and, that, and that's just going to get worse. We're gonna yeah, have we will have many many everyday objects that no no person. Not only do they not understand it, they could, nobody could understand <laughs> it. I mean, that's where we're going,
1: and it's going to be awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, guys, don't forget, December 22nd, 8 p.m. Eastern time, Facebook, the the Skeptics Guide Facebook page. We will be uh, streaming our live end of the year show. Please send us your votes for the best and worst and and funniest and everything of 2017. And thank you guys all for joining me this week. My pleasure, brother. And until next week, this is your Skeptics Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org, where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info@theskepticsguide.org. Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible.